Support is provided in part by Conway Shield. Those who answer the call and risk it all for the safety and well-being of others deserve someone willing to give their all in return. Conway Shield is built on the shoulders of three service legacies. Customizing the nation's very best firefighting shields has expanded to providing the most effective technology, tools, and training for today's fire and law leaders. Learn more at ConwayShield.com. Thank you for tuning in to the Leadership Under Fire Optimizing Human Performance Podcast. I'm your guest host, Jim McNamara. Today's guest is Joe Flood, the founder of N2 Communications and the author of The Fires on New York City's 1970s epidemic of fire and fiscal crisis, a book for which Joe won the Bronx Recognizes Its Own Award from the Bronx Council on the Arts. Joe, welcome. Thanks for having me, Jim. Joe, let's start from the beginning. What was the impetus for you to write The Fires? It was pretty random. I um, So my summers in, in high school and college, I used to you know, work at, volunteer at a, uh, the Catholic Worker, uh, which is a sort of uh, interesting sort of leftist, kind of old hippie Jesus kind of Catholic organization. They have a farm upstate New York and, and two soup kitchen shelters in the uh, Lower East Side, or what used to be known as the Lower East Side. I believe East yeah. Village is now technically what the realtors call that specific piece of neighborhood. <laughs> uh, but um, I was working in the neighborhood, and, and during college, I, you know, and I was pretty fascinated by it. I grew up in the suburbs of Boston. You know, it's a very different experience in, in downtown Manhattan. And uh, I got interested and was, you know, at the time I was starting to write and report a little bit uh, for my college newspaper. And I got interested. People would talk about this period in the history of the neighborhood where it went from being, you know, what, what we used to hear called, a, you know, a ghetto, uh, which – didn't so much refer actually necessarily to like economics and things, but more to that it was an ethnic enclave. Uh, Lower East Side is kind of the quintessential immigrant neighborhood, right? This is where Don Corleone, uh, you know, walked the streets and and everything German, Jewish, Italian, Irish, Black, Puerto Rican, Dominican, Chinese, you know, every group has gone through that neighborhood. There was this big shift that people talked about in the 1970s. The, the, The phrase they would use was when it went from being a ghetto to a slum. Um, and I, I don't know if those are the most politically correct terms anymore, but that's the way the old timers used to talk about it. And the distinction they were making was it went from being a poor, hard scrabble, but employed and upwardly mobile type of neighborhood to one that was yeah. seeing a lot more dysfunction, crime, drugs, um, you know, a lot of concentration of, of, of homelessness and a real lack of job opportunity. And uh, so, you know, I, I got really interested in this and, and was asking around, trying to understand it better. And people started this way. Everyone said to me, oh, you mean back when the neighborhood burned down? Burned down? What do you mean burned down? Because it's like the Chicago fire or something. Like, what's going on? And he said, oh, yeah, but just walk around. This is the densest neighborhood in, in the world. Any place you see a new building, now this is in the late 90s, early 2000s, so before a lot of the big boom, you know. Um, yep. Any place you see a, a parking lot, a community garden, uh, a new building, anything like that, there was a tenement that used to be there, and it burned down and fell down, and they cleared it up and put up something new, just about every single one. And I started walking around, and you look at, like, especially in, like, Alphabet City, and, yeah. you know, half the buildings in the block would be, would, would be or more would, would be new. 
So I thought this is interesting. And so I went back, you know, was back in college and went into the library, started running census numbers. Uh, and it turned out that these neighborhoods, um, I, I just started with the East Village, Lower East Side, but yeah, there were 60% population loss in some census districts, um, you know, a similar uh, housing losses, um, you know, 50, 60, 70% uh, in some cases, lower in many, but just massive percentage losses between 1970 and 1980. And I thought, this is weird. <laughs> like, I don't, what, what is going on here? Uh, what explain this is the densest, richest, most desirable city in the world. You know, what yeah. the heck is going on that this would all happen? And of course, then came to find out that this was a, a much bigger phenomenon. Certainly parts of Manhattan got it bad, but parts of South Bronx in particular, central Brooklyn got it even worse. And uh, it kind of just kicked me off into this story of, you know, about the fire department, and government policy and economics and urban planning and all these different these different things. And I basically spent, spent my twenties working on it, you know, started in college and then um, published the book uh, when I was, yeah, like 28, 29 years old. Um, so that was kind of a, you know, eight, 10 year uh, obsessive compulsive research and writing project. <laughs> it's a fantastic piece of work. It's without question the definitive piece of work about that era. I'm curious if, if anyone in the FDNY or more broadly the city of New York, was supportive of your research endeavor? Well, FDNY was incredibly supportive. You know, not so much in the official, you know, the, the, the press office or anything like that. But of course, this isn't really modern FDNY news, right? This is, this is contacts and things like that. Um, but I had uh, incredible support, particularly from a lot of the retired union folks, um, sure. you know, who were, you know, people I mentioned in the book, uh, you know, Tom Henderson is with the officers union, uh, Jimmy Boyle, uh, rest in peace. Uh, oh. He's one of the most amazing men I ever met in my life. Um, yes, indeed. And an incredible operator uh, and, and such yeah. a helpful person. It's funny. I don't know if I quoted Jimmy a single time in the entire book, uh, but I think, ha you know, half the, half the folks I talked to about those years came through him in one way or another, which is a, was a classic Jimmy Boyle behind the scenes, uh, making things happen, kind of, kind of move. Um, so, yeah, and then just talking to, you know, dozens and dozens of folks from the city at that time, from the fire department at that time, and, you know, over at the Mann Library, uh, the fire department library, where I basically lived for, <laughs> I think I was, for, for, for weeks at a time. Um, so, yeah, tr a tremendous amount of support um, from people in the department and a willingness, I think, too, to get into complicated issues because, listen, you know, people made decisions. Some were good, some were bad. There's, yeah. you know, there's times I, I don't think of myself as a default criticizer type, but there's mistakes were made and bad things happened. And sometimes there's criticism that comes in play. And I thought people were really honest about that and, and, and straightforward and, and willing to sort of engage in that way. And I think that reflects a general attitude within the fire service, you know, New York and elsewhere that, um, you know, performance is key. And the only way you're going to get better I've never heard of a, of a, you know, a basketball player who didn't watch game film, <laughs> you yeah, know, who right. didn't, who, who didn't have a coach critique and this and that and the other. And I think that a lot of people in the department really, you know, rightly uh, had that similar attitude. Um, you know, and I think that's also a military attitude too. I, I, I was not in the military, but you know, my business partner was and a number of friends uh, were, and I think it, it's interesting how these sort of like frontline institutions are often the best at, 
trying to really be self-critical and improve in that way. So yeah, really, really great support from people. I felt. Sure. And it's, it's great that you mentioned Jimmy Boyle. I have known Jimmy Boyle forever. God rest in peace. Jimmy Boyle grew up in my neighborhood. Um, I knew oh, you're a sunny side got... Yeah. I grew up on 43rd street. Jimmy grew up on 41st. I live now on 40th and Greenpoint. Uh, a lot of, oh, a lot of folks in, yeah, a lot of folks from the neighborhood involved in this business. Joe, we'll, we'll move now to the, one of the primary premises of your, of the book. The inordinate fire duty of the warriors is often attributed to urban blight that resulted from the mass exodus of the middle class. You know, the city was subsequently unable to cover their expenses. Violence and urban instability skyrocketed. It's a rather simplistic narrative, but based upon your research, is it accurate? Well, you know, I'd add what for the conventional wisdom, I would add the other piece of it is is arson is something that is, yes. you know often gets often gets blamed. Um, and I would say that now the arson piece is, is I think maybe the most sort of complicated of that. Arson was certainly a thing, um, yeah. absolutely, particularly in the later seventies. Um, you saw the numbers, the official numbers go up, and they're probably undercounted because. Declaring something an arson meant that people who didn't exist needed to do investigations that didn't have funds, right? <laughs> they cut everything <laughs> so bare. The fire marshals were, you know, just cut to the bone, no coordination. But anyway, the arson was real. But, you know, I think the analogy I used in the book was that, you know, the arson was not some kind of alpha predator, uh, you know, causing death and destruction. The arsonists were more like vultures, um, they were coming into neighborhoods that were that were on the downswing and decaying for a number of other reasons. Uh, one of the biggest, of course, being conventional fires. Um, and then it was, uh, you know, and, and, and as with anything, any kind of major change, there's always going to be it's always going to be a savvy uh, somebody looking to make a buck. Um, and there was money to be made over insuring uh, half, you know, dilapidated buildings. Don't put any money into them. Fire happens either because it's set or because the landlord hasn't filled the boiler in three months and people are using lousy space heaters, uh, you know, that short out and cause fires, whatever it is, and then collecting the fire insurance. Um, and that was a real thing. But really what was happening was, you know, there's kind of two pieces. I think you have one is the sort of, you know, fuel takes two. I mean, fire takes two things, right? It takes, it takes fuel and a spark. Um, and in terms of the fuel, New York was in a really tough spot. New York had sort of very intentionally throughout the 1950s and 60s, um, you know, really sort of undercut and, and, and kind of destroyed from within its industrial working class manufacturing shipping economy. It wasn't just a sort of unfortunate thing that happened because of big national economic things. The city did this on purpose. Uh, the city to actually zoned uh, enormous percentages of its manufacturing, active working neighborhoods, just yeah. said, nope, no more manufacturing. Um, you know, residential and um, office, uh, white collar office work only. I did this throughout the city. I mean, the best example was the World Trade Center. Um, they bulldozed about 100,000 jobs in that in the old Radio Row neighborhood Radio. Um, to build yeah. the World Trade Centers. Which, of course, the trade centers themselves never held that many people, with, even when they were fully occupied, which never happened until the dot-com boom right before, of course, they were attacked and fell. Um, and so they, what they did was take a neighborhood that paid taxes 
huge sums of taxes, employed, uh, you know, close to 100,000 people. And then, of course, the economic offshoots of that were huge. Uh, you know, Soho didn't go empty uh, for no reason. Soho went empty because that was the manufacturing and warehousing and sourcing district that, that worked in conjunction with Radio Row and the port. Um, so what did they do? They closed the port. They dug out the World Trade Centers. They literally yeah. used the dirt from the, the Trade Centers to build Cathy Park City. Um, yep. And, you know, and, and then uh, and so you they, they, you know, just physically destroyed uh, two, two economies. Uh, the other one was an offshoot of it. And then, of course, these are also not tax paying neighborhoods. Uh, the World Trade Centers didn't pay any tax uh, and they were supported by government subsidy bonds you know, government backed bonds. Um, so what does that do? Well, you wipe out a huge part of the economy and, and the, the job base of a lot of working class neighborhoods. And um, you also cut into city taxes. And so by the 1970s, New York was facing this really significant pinch on both sides. They had bulldozed hundreds of thousands of jobs. They had um, bulldozed even more homes. You know, this is the slum clearance era. And I think, you know, you think about housing projects. <laughs> housing projects are a funny thing. They're like the one thing that everybody can agree to disagree, to not like, even people who grow, who live in them, uh, sure. you know, as a, you know, it's a weird thing. And I think that history is a reason why, I mean, essentially what they were doing in New York was showing up in neighborhoods saying, eh, we're knocking this down. I mean, literally every single building except for a church, the church is the only exemptions they made. You know, you would just clear a 30 by three, you know, square block area like they did in the South Bronx or these other massive sections. Uh, you kick people out of their homes. Uh, their their communities, their jobs, uh, and then two three years later they get off a waiting list to get put into some other neighborhood of public housing. So the people yep. who are living in it were just treated horribly, um, kicked out of their homes, turned into virtual refugees. I mean, not even virtual, like just literally refugees um, within their own city, and then put into these you know places years later where they didn't know anybody, where there was no economic infrastructure, or there was nothing. Um, and, but of course, it, and it also costs the city money. Uh, I mean, this is what New York was doing through the 50s and 60s, it seemed like. Spending money to anger people seems to have been, <laughs> uh, you know, they couldn't have tried to do it much better. Um, and so this was a really difficult situation. You know, people talk about white flight, and that was very real. And race was a huge motivator in that. But a thing that people do not remember is that these neighborhoods, these working class neighborhoods, you know, sort of ethnic white uh, would be the way, you know, Irish, Italian, Jewish. These neighborhoods, the economies that provided the jobs for these neighborhoods were wiped out in the city. Yeah. And a lot of them moved to places like Long Island in New Jersey and Pennsylvania. And so people followed the jobs as, as, as they tend to do. Um, and so, I, you know, I think that's a piece that got missed in it. Um, and, and so, you know, I rambled a bit here, but this really set up a dangerous mix in New York City, um, a, a really dangerous one, where you have neighborhoods whose values are crumbling because why live in a worker neighborhood if the place where all the workers went to work no longer provides jobs? Um, so people were leaving. Um, you had a tax base in New York City that had been undercut by the city's own policies. That was further exacerbated by the fact that people who had the option to move were doing so. Um, 
you know, and I, I think there was, this was way overplayed at the time, but people that stayed behind were people that were pretty heavy users of, of city services. Um, you know, you had, you had a high, you had pretty high percentages of people that were on welfare because there were no jobs. Um, and yep. New York city is the only city in America that actually pays welfare, part of the welfare equation. A lot of places, it's almost purely the federal government, um, you know, with a tiny bit of state contribution, a lot of places it's, it's a, it's a, it's a mix, you know, move closer to 50, 50, uh, and New York city is the only city that actually has to pay a piece of that. So you have this really bad combination of factors and that's what provides the fuel. You know, you have these old neighborhoods, you have, you know, New York is one of the first cities to get, uh, to get, you know, electrification and lighting and things like that. Um, not a lot of updates in many of these tenement houses <laughs> between uh, 1924, you know, uh, the, the, that, that light bulb that, uh, that Don Corleone, t- you know, twisted off, uh, to take, you know, and it's, so you can yep. come in the dark yep. to assassinate the uh, the black hand uh, leader. Um, I don't know that anybody rewired those buildings in the meantime down on on, on Mott Street. Um, and so you had this really so you had this situation where the housing stock wasn't being maintained. Uh, people were cramming tighter and tighter and tighter into these apartments. Um, and you had all sorts of you know all sorts of things led to uh, led to fires, conventional fires. Um, you know somebody fell asleep with a cigarette. Um, you know, the, they were, there was no, no oil in the boiler, no gas, no, you know, so people were using, uh, people were using space heaters or their stove, a pro, you know, a gas stove to heat the place, which of course, you know, turns into fires. You have a, a two bedroom apartment with eight people living in it, which means, yeah. which it's like a, it's a, it's not linear growth. It's exponential with those kinds of things, right? Because having twice as many people, uh, means you've got like four times as many fire hazards, right? Between just yep. stuff that's too close to outlets and, and over overloaded sockets and, and all those kinds of problems. So it was a really bad situation on the ground and it started resulting in a, a significant number of, of structural fires in these neighborhoods. And then the city makes um, an interesting, and I think maybe good in a lot of ways uh, at the time, but in the end, pretty disastrous decision. To try, I mean, really revolutionary stuff ahead of its time. New York City sees what's going on in, you know, early computing and mathematics and says, we, it basically comes in and says, we want to do data. We want to do expert consulting. We want to take these things that, you know, now in cities are very common uh, in the last, you know, 10, 20, 30 years, but they were doing this stuff in the 1960s. Um, And it was a pretty phenomenal idea. Um, it was the, you know, the Rand Corporation, the guys yep. in charge of this study, uh, the same folks who, had, who brought us the Vietnam body count. Um, <laughs> and I think that that's a telling, it's a telling thing, um, you know, because I, I think it's, it's a bit metaphorical uh, in, in a sense. You know, you talk about it's, it's removing, it's taking data and removing it from, re- from literal life and death uh, from any sort of like moral context. Um, it is turning the entire world into a couple of data points. Um, you know, like the, I mean, computing power in 1969. That's not quite what it is now, and we can't, we still can't get the algorithms right. You know, uh, never mind on machines that were 15 years away from having the processing power to to to, to play pong on. Um, and so these really ambitious ideas came along to try to rationalize the fire system. And one of the guys, a, a city, city mayoral aide, to John Lindsay, the mayor at the time, was so he'd gone in for a meeting with the fire department. Uh, with some of the head chiefs and uh, talking about, you know, how do you, how do you choose where to put a fire station? 
you know, like which neighborhood, all this sort of stuff. And uh, what are the, <laughs> the old chief says to him, ah, it's easy. You just got to make sure there's enough room between the, uh, the building and the corner so the truck can, <laughs> the truck can swing around. <laughs> so the, the city, and that's amazing the, the, when you talk about algorithms and their usage. What were the primary variables that the, the fire department and RAN used in their algorithms? Um, there was essentially only one by the end of it, uh, which was response time. Uh, and actually, the, uh, it was actually not even real data um, they were using on response time. It was an equation derived from real data. They were looking at, the idea was that you could, if you measured that response time was sort of the key piece of data. And to this day, it, it is used as the, the key piece of data for the most part. It, it's got flaws, but, you know, I can see why. If you got to come with it, it's, you got with an equation, you got to use something. So, um, you know, how quickly can you respond to a fire? Um, it's not a bad idea. There were a couple of problems with it. Uh, initially, they had some really fancy ideas for measuring all kinds of things, but they just didn't have the processing power. Like I said, I mean, we're like 10 years away from Pong. Um, they just couldn't, <laughs> the, data, the computers couldn't handle it. So they figured, okay, well, let's just do the response time of the first responding company, which, you know, from the outside makes sense. Of course, there's a problem with that. Um, there's no there's not a lot of, not a lot of use. If you really need to vent that fire, well, you know, what's, what's an engine going to do, right? You need, you need right. ladder guy. Um, if you're talking, you know, same thing, if you're, if you're talking about some, some distance up um, and if just the ladder shows up, well, it might be able to make some rescues and vent, but you know, you need, usually need some water to put the fire out. Um, <laughs> these are not, you know, independent operating units, as I don't need to tell you, these are, these are pieces of teams, you know, um, this is the secondary and, the, and, and your, and your uh, defensive line. They got to work together. Um, and so, you know, that piece of data in it of itself is problematic um, because it doesn't take into the account the, the actual experience of fighting a fire or the neighborhoods that you're working in, which is a big factor. Um, then the other piece of this, and this really becomes the key thing, or, is, or well, there's two, there's two parts. One is the, the data collection. They basically handed out a lot of stopwatches to, uh, <laughs> you know, and they, and they said, hey, you know, all right, boys, go uh, hit the stopwatch when you, when you get the call and hit it again when you, when you stop. Which, you know, I, again, I, I can see where you'd want to do something like that. So that's the way you do it. We didn't have, we didn't have the GPS, uh, you know, trucks so you could track this in a database back then. But the problem is there was no buy-in from the people who were actually expected to collect this data. Um, and so things were all over the place. Uh, you know, you had, you had officers that never bothered. And either just never handed stuff in or never just, you know, made up times. You had some officers who wanted to take, a, you know, like a gung-ho attitude of we're the fastest company around. And, and they made it, yeah, they, yeah. they dropped the numbers down every time. And then you had a bunch of people uh, who did the opposite and said, we're, you know, we are getting killed here. We need to show them how long it takes us to get to a fire because we're busy at another one or, you know, whatever it is. Um, and so they would inflate the data. So the data collection from the get uh, was terrible. And, you know, the RAND guys didn't know this. I found out because I talked to a bunch of, you know, former retired guys who'd, who'd done this and said, ah, oh, yeah, I would make it up all the time. One company I worked in did this and another did that. So, you know, garbage in, garbage out. Um, it's just it's, it, the data set was, was unusable. Didn't stop them. But they, and so when they used it, one of the things they did was – you know, they came up with, they looked at it and they said, oh, it turns out that uh, 
you know, it doesn't matter actually what neighborhood, what time of day, what day of the week it is. Fire companies all respond in the same amount of time. It's just a distance equation. I mean, they were actually factoring in how long it took a truck to get from, uh, you know, from, from being stationary to truck or engine. From stationary to full cruising speed of, you know, 35, 45, whatever it is, miles per hour. Uh, they were that, that that was a they were they were they worried about that, but they said that the, there's no difference between uh, you know Sunnyside at 2 a.m. and uh, Times Square at 2 p.m. <laughs> yeah, crazy. It, it also goes it ties into another. Um, we don't calculate fire loss in this city. You know, there's no mm-hmm. you can't look up. You know, I I, I can recall uh, Columbia University and their capstone project. They looked at how much we prevented above and beyond, and they claimed that we prevent an additional three to five billion dollars a year in property damage by the actions that we take. We're one of the few jurisdictions that doesn't give you a property value estimate. And and to further compound that, I didn't realize that. Yeah, and fire has a magnifying impact. You know, you can have a fire in a store in a bodega. It's not just the the contents and the building. It's the wages that are not paid, the taxes that are not being paid, the, the, the suppliers that, that don't get goods. Uh, it, it's, we still have a problem in this city, and even in this country, that, that, that fire is still such an issue. Uh, and, and the reality also, given the nature of what's burning today, uh, the chance of being significantly injured or killed in a fire is greater now than it was during the war years. Which oh, yeah. I mean, you think about statistics. the heat that comes off of yeah. artificial materials versus natural sure. materials, the amount of electronics that are in, uh, you know, are in a place, the, 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 the explosion hazards that you have, uh, you know, lithium ion batteries everywhere. You know, it's like there's, it's a real, and I think that's a real, and that's a mentality thing that I think, I think people are inherently bad at it, which is taking a ton of variables, weighing them out against each other. And trying to come to equitable, you know, solutions and understandings and agreements. And I think that was one of the biggest things that, one of the biggest problems with the RAND studies. You know, to to to, to, to bring it back to that a little bit. Essentially, what they what they said was that, uh, yeah, that it didn't matter where, any place, and any place, any time. It's all the same response time. It's just speed. And two, um, that they assumed that every company that the nearest company was always available to respond, which, I mean, I can't imagine. You imagine, you imagine running that by a, a South Bronx firefighter in, uh, in, in 1970? I mean, I, <laughs> the guy's going no. up, you know, 50, 60, 70, averaging 40, 50, 60 runs a day. Uh, yeah. They were never in the, in the house. I, that was, and, and so, so anyway, that, that detail, I think we can leave that aside. Essentially what these, what these studies they did said was, you can close fire companies, especially ones that are nearby each other, especially second sections, which was, a th- you know, they, they, they sort of like yes. labor as, as neighborhoods had fire problems, they put a second company in there as a backup um, to trade off. And according to their models, the second section was useless, which I think makes sense. If the first section is always available to respond, how does having a second section get your first responder there any faster? It doesn't. Um, which meant that closing I believe the second, fifth, and ninth, or something like that, busiest companies in the whole city, um, would, they said would have zero effect uh, on coverage, which is obviously pretty nuts on its face. 
but but the issue became, and this is, you know, so the studies were deeply, deeply flawed, but they were very convenient for the city because what they said was the city could pull resources from poor communities, um, generally speaking, you know, black and, and Puerto Rican communities. Yes. Um, and wasn't their fault. Wasn't the politician's decision. Wasn't the, wasn't a fire commissioner's decision. It was the numbers. How can you argue with it? Yeah, science says, right. you know, it's not, not our fault. And I would say my firehouse uh, had a second section. Uh, and the mm. old timers would tell you exactly what happened uh, when they closed those companies. It, it, again, you destroyed the neighborhood. I mean, I work in Harlem, and when I got there, again, after the – I got there in 94 when the main battle was over, but we had more vacant buildings than anywhere in the city. Like, how yep. is it that there was no accountability? There were never any repercussions. It's kind of remarkable, um, you know, that, that it didn't happen. But I think if you think about what we've seen from the tech world and from the political world over the last 10 or 20 years, it does, it's not that surprising in a way. I mean, the one thing you don't hear from these worlds these days is accountability. You don't hear people saying, like, here's where we messed up. Here's, <laughs> we'll pay back the money on it, and here's what we're doing to be better. That's, that's not something you ever see anybody say these days. And I think we had a similar situation. And for a similar reason to some extent, which is that, like, people don't understand deep mathematics. You know, I, no. it took me you know, so long, all I did was research this stuff and study. And it took me so long to learn the statistics and to learn and to understand all these things. Um, it's not, that's not something the average person is doing. It's not something they had the time for. Um, and so there's a tendency in certain fields to just sort of say, well, the expert says, you know, medicine can be as like this sometimes, you know, like, you know, yeah. law is often like this. People get intimidated. Well, the accountant says, um, and what that means is there's an incredible amount of responsibility on that expert to do it right. And in the case of New York, it, it was not done right. Uh, it was used as an excuse um, to, for a city that was going bankrupt to cut budgets in the poorest, least influential neighborhoods in the city. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, that, that became a thing and, and people really, yeah, you know, people, people did, did, did not take accountability at the time and, you know, it, it you know, to this day, I think the same mistakes get repeated over and over again. Right? So it's, <laughs> that's the sure. nature and, of the thing. And for folks who, who, who've never lived in New York City, I've lived here my whole life, and I started high school in 78, so I lived through a lot of this. The absolute scale of the devastation defies quantification. Uh, you, you brilliantly talked about entire census tracts, you know, almost being eliminated, tens of thousands of people losing their homes perhaps a thousand or more deaths directly related to these cuts. It's simply to me unconscionable that all of this goes without any record. There's no real understanding of that even among the young firefighters today, you know, a lot of the great warriors guys, um, they're all gone. Our connection to that time is over. It's essential to understand what happened because the position we're in today, you know, things one or two bad turns here and we, would be headed towards a similar situation. What are your thoughts? No, I think that's right. And, you know, there's talk now of a, of a big infrastructure pr plan, um, which might be, you know, which is, it's a little different, but I think, you know, 
speaks to the, the state that American infrastructure is in. Um, and of course, you know, bad infrastructure, it's fire departments clean, is, is going to be responsible at some point. Uh, you know, whether it's collapses, fires, all these sorts of things. And, and, and I think that's, I think it's right. And I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned from that period. And I, I think it, you know, you may, and you make this really interesting point about it. It's not just, you know, the fact that a, a bodega burns and loses X amount of inventory. It's the fact that that bodega provided jobs, that that was a really nice amenity for people where they could go and get their, where they get their supplies. You know, the, uh, Jane Jacobs, this great urban writer talking oh, about yes. how, um, you know, your sort of neighborhood friends, people that you wouldn't invite over for a cup of coffee, but that you have friendly, deeply important, semi-economic government, you know, transactions with, you know, that bodega was where people left their keys um, when stuff was going on. That bodega was the spot where you could check in, you know, hey, the babysitter's supposed to come by and get sandwiches at eight o'clock. Let, let me know if, uh, you know, makes, let me know when they come by. Just make sure everything's all right. Places yeah. that provide essential roles in neighborhoods that are complicated, but it's like an ecology. You, you can't take out one species in an environment and think that it's not going to affect all the other species. And, and certain ones are incredibly important, and the ripple effects are huge. And I think that when you're talking about something like fire, you know, there's a phenomenal movie, um, Decade of Fire that came out a few years ago, which is, you know, my book is very much about the fire department and the policies mm -hmm. and the planners and the experts. And this is the flip side of that. Vivian uh, Vasquez, uh, she, is, she grew up in the neighborhood and she was living in this community where, you know, going to school every day, the classroom smelled like smoke, where you yeah. grew up being told that you better learn to fall asleep with your shoes on. You, know, you better keep a suitcase or a pack ready to go with the bare essentials, toothbrush, underwear, socks, because people, you know, they were, you talked, and this book, she does a phenomenal job with this. And it's, you're looking at um, people who get kids who are burned out of their apartments four or five times. And what does that lead to? Well, that's not a kid who's, who's really well set up to be going to school, you know, um, yeah. and, and the kinds of things, and these things feed on themselves. Poverty breeds, desperation, it breeds crime, uh, you know, drug addiction. You know, you think of when's the last time opioids were as big a deal as they are now? I, I think of I think of Harlem in the nineteen seventies. Maybe there's something yeah. something about the loss of industrial jobs and stability that drives people to opioid use. Um, you know, as 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 a lot of these the things we're seeing in, in the Rust Belt are things that we saw in Brooklyn and the Bronx and Manhattan in the nineteen sixties and seventies. And I think there's something to that, but I, I'd highly recommend that. And, and it speaks to the, as you talked about, the really broad impact that a fire can have on a community and on a neighborhood and the ways that it impacts everything, healthcare, education, economic development, all these issues. And Joe, given your understanding about numbers, what kind of advice would you give to folks to, to try and bring some antiseptic of daylight to these, these algorithms to better understand the variables that are involved. How can we do this? So I think one is a, the first thing. Uh, the first thing a reporter will always tell you to do: call someone who's really smart about this. Is <laughs> uh, the first the first thing I, I, I recommend. And don't only call one. You know, I mean, I think the reality <laughs> is that outside of and there are people in the fire service who are extremely talented, right? There, there are data scientists and there are soft, you know, computer software engineers, people that can do these things. Whether it's in house or outside. 
um, needing people who really deeply understand uh, the numbers is really important. But you also need people who can relate those numbers into actual uh, real, live, real life experience. You know, I, I think about uh, sports a lot with this. There's probably few industries that have done a better job of adopting statistics and analytics while still remaining rooted in the actual event and not just the statistics that are, are hoped to be able to describe it and predict it. You know, I think that's a pretty good model, you know, where you see like coaches who understand the numbers, um, but they also operate on a lived experience sort of thing. And I think that that's a thing that we as a society have trouble doing. Um, is trying to balance. We sort of, we tend to go one way or the other. Either it's an anecdotal thing. Ah, well, I know a guy who did this thing once, you know? So therefore, <laughs> versus a, well, oh, 87.65% of, uh, according to the, you know, the projections will, would be this or that. Uh, we have trouble balancing those two. It's sort of like you pick one or the other and you hope for the best. And I think it's all about that balance of, of thinking, you know, broadly about what are the statistics telling you? What are the right statistics? And what, where do they fall short? And I think that's yeah. the big thing is under, there is no perfect approach. It's uh, a, a client of mine. We have a, a started a company. We, you know, we were sort of writers for hire and a, a client is a lot of, but um, you got to remember most choices are between different suboptimal choices. There is no perfect answer for anything. You really need to balance things and try to figure out, what's the least likely to be a terrible decision, you know, but understand that nothing's guaranteed and you can't just, you know, do one thing and take one approach. That's the thing. I mean, as you said, like there are a lot of statistics to quantify these things, but there's some things that go beyond statistics. I mean, I've heard people argue that New York city's decreased, you know, uh, murder rates and even just sort of broadly mortality rates um, in a lot of places is due in part to the fact that the fire department now does ambulance runs and it shows, shows up to medical calls because, you know, the response times, I mean, you, you're talking about, I don't know exactly what they are, but having a fire truck show up is so much faster than just an ambulance. And so how many people almost died of a heart attack or, you know, that car accident or that stab wound in an hour live because somebody got there 45 seconds earlier. Um, yes. And also and the, how do you, the uh, advances of combat medicine, the murder rate would be considerably higher than it is now were it not for the advances of combat medicine that are now on the street being used every day to save people. That's exactly right. And, and that is, how do you measure that? What's the impact of how much is a death worth is not a question that I think much of anybody feels all that comfortable asking or answering. But I think that, it, you know, any you know, government, uh, any large entity has to ask because the reality is if you're influential, the decisions you make will result in deaths or lives saved or careers ruined, whatever it is, you know, and, yeah. and I think that the, that abdication of responsibility is the biggest problem I see. You know, we've just come out with, you know, COVID being a really sad. I mean, we've done a lot of things right, particularly the vaccine rollout. I think it's important to remember, but, you know, we saw so, so much abdication of responsibility from so many people and an unwillingness to have hard conversations. And I, I think that that bodes really poorly. And unfortunately, that's what a lot of the statistics are often used as an excuse 
to advocate. And Michael Lewis, who I, you know, I talked about sports and analytics. The writer yeah. Michael Lewis is kind of the, the popularizer of Moneyball and the blind side. Yeah. Phenomenal, phenomenal writer. I interviewed him once, and I asked him about I said, you know, he'd written books about the great things that statistics did, like Moneyball, and then he wrote The Big Short, which was about the horrible things that statistics oh, yeah. did to the American economy. I said, how do you tell the difference? Like, when is it good? When is it bad? What's the, you know, method for evaluating? And he said, you know, early on, when you take a, any kind of industry field that has not really been exposed to a lot of, of analytics, a lot of data, it's an anecdotal, it's a storytelling field, uh, but that's how you learn is by, you know, one experience at a time. So there's enormous gains to be had. The statistics always reveal some low-hanging fruit, some really easy piece of the, you know, in baseball, it was guys who get walks, you know, who can get, yeah, get on yeah. this more. Japanese convertible bonds was the big one in, 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 on, on Wall Street in the 1980s when they first started bringing in these computers. Um, the problem is, and, and what the, the thing is, and it's super helpful, and what, you, what it does is it, you've got more voices in the room, more smart people coming from different angles to argue about complicated problems. And that when, when statistics are used as another thing to consider, another thing to think hard about, they're incredibly helpful. The problem is when the statistics become an excuse to not think hard about a problem. They become an excuse to not bring in a broad coalition of people, whether that's in a, inside of a company or whether that's inside of a, a city government or whatever it is. Um, that when you use statistics to shut down the conversation, that's when things go bad. Because shutting down the yeah. conversation is what results in stupid stuff getting done without anybody saying, hey, wait a second, this doesn't, this doesn't seem right. We, we got a, a housing market that's based on uh, no income, no job loans. That does something. <laughs> something's off here. I don't care what your, what your computer model says. This is messed up. Uh, yeah, and I, and I think that that's or or you know uh, saying that uh, yeah you can respond to a fire as quickly in uh, Manhattan in the middle of the day as you can in, in Brooklyn in the middle of the night or you know suburban Brooklyn in the middle of the night uh, is is crazy on its face and that's the way those that data was used and I think that that's really where you fall into it but you know finding a way to get around that uh, is you know balancing these views. Yeah, you know, old timers and new folks and data people, and you know, I think that that's 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 I think one of the biggest things is trying to get that balance and and understand that people are going to argue and disagree. You know, you're going to have creative friction. It's going to be hard. Some of the things the union wants, they're going to look at. They'll look at things and say, "Oh shoot, now well, maybe we're a little off on this." That's hard for any union yeah. to do. The city's going to have to yeah, do the same thing. And it's great that you that's talk awesome. about balance. Sandy Alderson did a podcast with Leadership Under Fire, and Patty Murphy hosted that. And Sandy talked about you know, the quantitative piece, the analytics probably went a little too far in baseball. So you talk about a balance. You know, it's probably gone a little too far. It probably has to come back a little. That goes right back to the balance piece uh, that you talk about. Uh, and from our end, as I segue into the next question about unions, the role of unions in organized labor during the 70s, do you think that organized labor, uh, in terms of the unions, the firemen, the cops, the teachers, et cetera, were they helpful or detrimental in enabling the city to survive? I think it was a mixed bag. Um, I think that, uh, you know, by, by and large, I would say helpful. Um, but I think there were certainly mistakes made. You know, the unions were in an interesting 
uh, an interesting spot by this time. You know, Mayor Wagner. Wagner came out of the the old Democratic machine, um, as anybody did. who was a politician in the 1940s, 50s, and he broke the machine. He broke with the with the with the Democratic Party bosses and this sort of you know kind of famous. I think it was 1959 was the election, and um, it was a really sort of epic moment. And it actually gets you know written down as this this great moment where the this sort of corrupt you know party boss uh, stranglehold was broken in the city. He had to make some deals with the devils to do it, though. One of them was to get to get union support. He dropped the requirement that civil service employees live in the city. It, it becomes very difficult because what you can what you end up with is people who are working in neighborhoods that they no longer have any connection to. Um, and I think that that's one of the best things that. The city, you know, first responders uh, and, and, and sort of frontline service providers in the city have is on the ground knowledge and understanding the street. And I think anytime you separate those people from the street, the bigger problems you have. Of course, in the in, you know in policing, this is a this is community policing, you know, where where, where people the, the the beat cop actually knows everybody um, and knows how to handle things. Versus, you know, kind of people get bounced around and they're, they're like parachuting, you know, into these different situations. And I think in the fire department, there was uh, at times there crept up a lack of connection between some of the uh, between the department itself and, and the unions and the neighborhoods where they were working um, and things that were happening there. And I think that at times, you know, the, these, these sorts of problems, the unions didn't didn't make all the best decisions. Actually, you know, I talked about the second sections. And. You know, the city closing those down and saving a bunch of money and unleashing a firestorm. Well, the unions were pretty – the unions did not fight those second section closings very hard. And the reason for that was that no one wanted to be in the second section. You had – you were crammed into a house. You were in uh, a neighborhood, generally, you know, almost definitionally, that was going to be poor, dense, crowded you know, these were not neighborhoods where a lot of firefighters themselves grew up or lived in anymore. Maybe their family used to, but they didn't anymore. And I think that that disconnect. Oh, and the other thing was the people got put into the second sections. This was like when you didn't pay your dues in, in uh, you know, in, in one of the uh, fraternal organizations. This was, you know, you, you, you pissed off somebody in the union, you know, whatever it was. These were the guys that got put in the second section. And so the guys didn't want to be in them, and they didn't really have much political support. And so when the city closed, them, the unions really didn't fight that hard on the, on the second sections. And it was a mistake from a sort of, I guess, justice standpoint, right, that these neighborhoods that are burning are getting their, their sections closed. And the union, unions certainly fought it to some extent, but it was not, not in the way that they, they should have. The other thing was it established a precedent, and the precedent was the city had data, and the city could make decisions based on it. And there wasn't a whole lot that anybody could say about it. I think that really became the issue. So by the time the unions really dug in and tried to fight against that data in a really serious way, that wasn't until the cuts that came during the fiscal crisis, until like 1974, 75, 76, when it didn't matter. Everybody was getting cut. That was just the bottom line. You know, like every, no matter how strong your case was, the city was – just you know, hemorrhaging cash, and was on the was on the, on the yeah. doorstep of bankruptcy. You know, Ford the city dropped dead, and so it became extremely difficult to make subtle, nuanced points about how the statistics didn't really capture things. 
by that point. It, it probably would have been a little easier to do that in during the first round of cuts, which came in like 1968. I mean, these were early. Um, yeah. the, the, the second sections were closed, and I, I so I do think. Listen, I, you know, I'm a. I, I grew up in a union family. You know, my dad was the uh, secretary of the police union, and I, I think as as a general rule, unions are great organizations for organizing workers and bringing that perspective to the table and, and all these sorts of things, but they make mistakes too. And I think that that was a mistake that the unions made at the time. Sure. Well, they, the unions were, were asked for cuts. The unions also provided the city with pension money and the city initially told them, well, if we, if you give us the pension money and loan it to us, that we will, you know, we won't cut you and we won't close firehouses. And it turns around, you know, that they lied. Uh, that's a yeah, lesson that, anyway. that, yeah, um, and that's a lesson that has stuck with us, that has passed down from generation to never trust them. I mean, the most astounding story, and I think you touched on it, was the closing of the Tin House uh, to call yes. in a, 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 a relocation on Super Bowl Sunday and then put a lock on the door. It's just absolutely insane. And it's, it's a story that really defies logic. But this was, you know, this is what the guys were dealing with back then. Yeah. Those were bitter losses. No, I think that is exactly right. You know, I, I want to say, it, you know, I have like, I have, you know, one, two criticisms of the unions here and there. I think the thing that, the things that were done by the city were really a problem. And actually, you know, you, it's a great point. People forget this. The biggest bailouters of the city were the pension funds, were the unions, yeah. uh, which agreed to, to, you know, put a huge uh, allocations of money towards city bonds, which was risky. You know, I mean, talk about all your eggs in one basket. Not yeah. only you're, you're the biggest investor in the company that pays your paychecks. I mean, boy, that's that you're really you're really doubling down at that point. Uh, and the unions are willing to do it out of, I think, as you said, um, uh, part of it is a deal that, hey, we're not going to get cut as bad. Uh, but I think also just a, a genuine sense of civic pride and duty. And what did they get in return? You know, they get the slap in the face and it creates a lot of problems that go down the road because, of course, you know, the people that made that. How many people made the decision to close up the tin house, as you pointed out? I, I have no idea. A handful. How many of them were involved in city government 10 years later? Probably not that many. And today, yeah. probably nobody. The attitude, the, the scar of, of something like that carries on to labor relations and all, all sorts of relations to this day. And, and we see that all over. You know, you, One bad actor representing some institution or some group can poison the well for a decade. Sure. Great, uh, great point, Joe. Joe, we're going to switch gears again. The leadership under fire team is passionate about humanizing the narrative. Was there a story or event that you researched about firefighting during this era that really resonated with you on a human level? Well, so many. You know, I think that the accumulated weight of the stories was I think one of the biggest things is because you you heard so many of the same stories over and over again, uh, which was the incredible emotional and physical toll that those years took on the firefighters. You know, you, you talked about how there there aren't many folks around from that era anymore. Part of that's just the years, but part of that is the physical beating that guys took. How yeah. many how many cancer cases? How many heart attacks? How many you know high blood? How many people dying at 55, 60 instead of 75 um, yeah. were because of the physical toll that it took and the emotional toll of seeing people's lives up in flames every night. 
and the same same going for the people in the neighborhoods themselves um, that had to deal with that had to deal with these things and, and the, the, what it would do in your own life to have this happen. Um, and the fact that a lot of times people in the neighborhoods and firefighters have critical things to say about each other, which I think speaks to how hard it is in tough situations for the people that are having to deal with it on a day-to-day basis. You know, like firemen are under incredible stress. People in a neighborhood are getting there or have seen their homes and lives torn apart. And so, you know, you know, you know better than anybody. Firefighting is a rough business. You are smashing holes in walls and ripping out windows and doing all these sorts of things. And if you're a person sitting there watching your entire everything you own in the world be torn apart, um, you know, the idea of like, do they got to they have to be so rough? You know, they have to they really got to throw all that stuff. Well, the answer is yes. Um, And under normal circumstances, you know, that firefighter because, you know, he's he's a part of the community because the department has time to, to have community outreach and understanding. And the people have time and there's civic organizations and groups that promote this and people get it Um, when the neighborhoods in flames, when all the infrastructure is falling apart. Uh, you know, when, when there's none of this camaraderie between different groups and people understand it, um, it's, you know, you're mostly just adversaries that you don't really know. Uh, and I think that was really one of the most heartbreaking things that people who are victims on both sides and, and, and heroes on both sides, that they should be in conflict was a, a thing that really was, it felt sort of painful to me that the people who are forced to, you know, to, to deal with this, these terrible situations, there's hostility between them was, was such a difficult thing to hear and to say, um, you know, that was a, that was, I think really the, the accumulated conflict of that. It, w- it was a really difficult thing. And, and I think we see this a lot, you know, that the people on the bottom rungs or people, you know, they have to, they're, they're, you know, fighting amongst each other, organized labor, Versus people, you know, non-unionized, lower, low-wage workers. Well, that's that's awfully tough for people to be to be fighting it over when there's, you know, fat cats. that could probably probably a little more involved here. And I think sure. that was one of the biggest things is the way that these tough conditions they put each people at, at each other's throats when they don't need to be. And I think that's something we're seeing in America right now. Everybody, a lot of people have it tough and are, are put in these situations where they end up fighting with each other. When they, when, you know, if things were a little better run, we maybe could be proactive and actually help each other out. But I say that too, though, that's not the usual thing. I mean, most the firefighters are too incredible connections with the communities. People in the communities are incredibly respectful and grateful to firefighters and firefighting in general. But to see those bits and pieces of that was, was, you know, was, was really hard. And I think it's, but it's informed me since politically to understand how these fights happen and, to try to remember not to just take sides and, and think about that, but to think like, you know, both sides can be right in a lousy situation. Um, yeah. Maybe there's something beyond, you know, the, 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 this little, this little fight we're having, maybe there's a bigger issue at stake here that's driving why everybody is so upset about this. Uh, maybe there's other things. Sure. That can be dealt with. That's great. And much of the, the issues that you talked about exist today. The fire department is essentially the all-encompassing agency of last resort. When nothing works, you call us. Where I am in Harlem, we have one of the largest amounts of of high-rise projects in in the country, and they are collapsing. And they call us for everything. The toilet overflows, uh, the light bulb is out, 
That is really difficult when you talk about relationships. In the last two months, we had uh, you know, two guys who had uh, a knife pulled on them in an elevator and another one that got into a bit of an action against, a, uh, against another civilian. And in both instances, people from the building came down and apologized, which is pretty remarkable and pretty cool. Yeah, and that speaks to exactly that speaks to how much the community at large understands it. But when you but that that you know an individual can do some crazy things. And I think you make a great point. Firefighters are the only people who will always show up, no matter how you know the police, the police do as well. But how badly something is run. But police, yeah, there's a lot of things. Police will not show up for a uh, because the heater's not working in, in the projects. Right? But fire, firefighters will because. That's the, that's their mandate, and a bad heater might lead to a fire. So in these communities that have been abandoned by the system, the only person that actually shows up is a firefighter. So where do you direct your anger at a, at a yeah. bunch of people you've never seen? Uh, you know, some yeah. some people are gonna you know irrationally are gonna throw that at the one representative of the city that actually does show up, and that's exactly the kind of conflict that that's so difficult and 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 and, and really is so. So problematic, and it's what happens when the people who are responsible abdicate that responsibility and hide out behind these people who are who are on the front line. Yeah, well said. And in these historic neighborhoods, you know, Bed Stuy, East New York, Harlem, these poor folks are the first to get crushed in an economic downturn and the last to ever make any kind of forward progress. It's uh, and what's going on now is beyond heartbreaking to see. And the first to get priced out when the neighborhood it's trendy. Yeah, absolutely. Joe, I'm going to switch gears a little bit and go to a topic that you really enlightened me about, and that's John O'Hagan. John O'Hagan is absolutely unknown in today's FDNY. Maybe some senior chiefs, 40-year guys know, but for the rank-and-file fire member who's hired after 9-11, absolutely nobody knows him. An amazing individual, chief of department and the commissioner, chief of department at age 38, you portray O'Hagan both favorably as a progressive, reform-minded leader and also unfavorably as a tone-deaf leader to the uh, ghetto neighborhoods. How would you assess the leadership style of John O'Hagan as an executive leading the FDNY through one of these tumultuous periods? You know, I think he really, and this is, he's in a lot of ways the primary character of the book. I think he really sort of embodied and, and went through all of the difficulties and opportunities and successes and contradictions of his era in a lot of ways. I mean, to, to start with, the man is a hero in World War II as a frontline firefighter, you know, and I think that that's an extremely important thing to begin with. And, uh, you know, I, I think uh, he was way ahead of his time as a thinker. Actually, you know, Vinnie Dunn, I, I have a quote in the book about, you know, when, when the towers collapsed on 9-11. Yep. Yep. And watching it on TV, and he did not understand it. He didn't understand the mechanics and the architecture and the physics of what had happened. And he said, you know, he said, he says, you know, I'm supposed to be the guy. Like I would, it's kind of embarrassing. Uh, and like I'm, I'm the guy that they pay to to think about this stuff, and I didn't understand it. He said, I opened up O'Hagan's book on high-rise firefighting, and there it was. It was all about the exterior, exterior load bearing and the way the trusses worked. It was all right there. This guy saw it in, you know, the 1960s. He was a pretty remarkable figure who was really excited about the opportunities that bringing statistics and data, you know, provided to the city, who was 
personally ambitious in a way that, you know, that's always a complicated thing, but I don't think in a sort of, you know, it's, it's, it's me or nothing kind of way. I think it was, he was a person who was ambitious for his own reasons, but also for the community that he represented and for firefighting and, and, and for the city that, you know, that he grew up in and spent his whole life in and love and really some remarkable accomplishments. I mean, you look at the, the list of things that he, you know, this, everything from the jaws of life to slippery water, which never quite worked out, but you know, people still, still remember a little bit. Um, all of the modern high-rise firefighting codes, they're all rooted in his work. I mean, every single yeah. one of them that exists to this day uh, is based on something that John O'Hagan said, boy, we really got to worry about this in like 1964 about. But he was in charge of the department when these decisions were made. And I think that he, he made a few bad bets. Um, you know, one was, you know, he talked about the fire department having – you know, agreed to put pension money into the city in return for, you know, not as many cuts. And then they got, they got kind of screwed on the deal. Well, same thing happened to John O'Hagan. Um, John O'Hagan really believed in efficiency. He really believed in that, that there were ways to make the fire department more progressive, more flexible, more modern, and save money for city taxpayers and provide better services to the city itself. And that's what, you know, really got him going with these initial studies. And he made some were bad cuts, but good faith cuts to the budget at a time when he didn't need to. Uh, you know, actually, Benny Dunn talked about this quite a bit. He said, you know, O'Hagan tried to cut back and be more efficient during good times. What he didn't understand was, the, you know, the, the, the life cycle, the flow. He said, you know, the way it goes is there's money. Things get a little bloated. You know, there's a little too much of this, a little too much of that. You know, we're, we're not 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 staying up with the times. And then there's a fiscal crisis and hopefully, you know, you cut the right stuff and you got to get leaner and then, you know, the same cycle repeats itself. And, and so what happened to O'Hagan was he made these really good faith cuts to get more efficient in the late sixties, early seventies. And then suddenly there was a fiscal crisis. So he wasn't running a department that was 20, 30% bloated or whatever the number would be, you know, or 10% bloated, like everywhere, every, every other department of the city, he'd already cut a lot of that out. But did the city say, oh, yeah, no, everybody takes a 25% cut across the board except for the fire department? Well, of course they didn't. Right. And so he was forced to make these really dangerous cuts, and, and he knew that. And I, I do think there was an element of you know, his back. He was, he was a high-rise guy. You know, he'd, worked, he'd, he'd worked downtown Manhattan. He'd worked right across the water. Um, you know, responded to those, and I, he didn't have as as much understanding of sort of tenement firefighting or slum, get out, you know, firefighting. And I think that these were not neighborhoods that he was deeply connected to. And I think that 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 informed the incredibly difficult the choices he made with the incredibly difficult decisions that he was you know that he was forced uh, into. And I, I think at times like that that really. You know, the bottom line, I mean, I, I quoted his the guy who ran his statistics, who I talked to, who said, well, listen, sometimes, you know, you, the, the, the computers would say to cut a house, but, you know, it would be, be down the street from where a judge lived or there'd be <laughs> something else. And uh, so, you know, you couldn't really make that cut. So, you know, you move down the list, you find something else. Well, what that meant, in effect, was that any neighborhood that had a little bit of political juice you know, they could maybe get the cuts. They could maybe get the closing stopped. So where did you end up cutting? Well, the poorest, 
the least white, the least politically connected, the least employed neighborhoods. And he oversaw that system. And I think, yeah, he, he, it's a, he's a really, I think, fascinating character. He's hands down the most in, influential person in modern American post-World War II firefighting in America mm-hmm. in, in every sense. But I, I think he's a complicated and fascinating figure. And, and you know, I would say that you know, people are complicated in these ways. You know, I, I think when I think about him, too, I think about my, my own some decisions I made as a reporter in trying to understand him. And I think about, you know, interviewing people that were close to him in ways, you know, that were who said critical things and maybe didn't mean to, but they did say them or, you know, that, that were really hurt when things that they felt were critical were, were put in print afterwards. And I, and I think that that, you know, it's kind of like, it's learning my own lesson as a, as a reporter at the time, a little older now, but uh, you know, certainly very young then. Um, and, and trying to and thinking about you know it, it's really hard to be critical of people you think are also great, and yeah. I made my own mistakes in trying to understand that and, and emphasizing things and, and to think about that and uh, you know I, I think that kind of gave me a little bit of empathy for for what he meant you know like think about that. of course it's nothing like the scale you know a book that's in people yes I think running seems... a city department is mind-boggling yeah and it just seems for a man that brilliant not to realize that entire tracts of city are being leveled uh, that look like Dresden in 45. When I got on the job, I was broken in by guys who worked in that period who were on their way out. And the only thing that they ever said about him was, oh, yeah, he's the genius who thought he could do this job with half the guys. I never knew (laughs) uh, about his brilliance until I read your book. And that's a tragedy because this amazing individual, good, bad, or indifferent, deserves to be examined because he was a, a, a remarkable man. Absolutely. I mean, a really, I think that's right. And actually, you know, we talked about Jimmy Boyle earlier and Jimmy had said that he'd, you know, he, he brought O'Hagan actually in on some events at the union uh, years later. And he talked about like, he, he said like it, it was a real shame that a guy who was so smart, he was shunned by, you know, uh, by so many people in the department afterwards and validly so understandably so. But that his, you know, the, him as a character and the, the things that he did for that to be lost, I think, is a real shame because he is an absolutely incredible figure. I mean, this was a guy who, who, who was, you know, he was the head of his platoon in, at, at, I believe, 18 or 19 years old in the South Pacific because there was no one older that was still alive. This was a guy who saw the results in the Philippines of people of, of, of retreating Japanese soldiers who were tying people to the stilts in, in, in their houses and then setting the houses on fire and then collapsing on these people. Um, no one understood the horrors that fire can impact, can, you know, impact way it can impact people in, in a community uh, and really passionately cared. Kind of remarkable how little formal education he had, although he continued on as in his adult and actually acquired a lot of degrees and things like that, but you know, who real, a real scholar and a frontline guy. And there's not a lot of people like that. Um, and I think so much of, if you think about it on a national scale, he saved, I, I, who knows how many lives and how much property loss, because there's very little in modern firefighting that he was, he did not have a hand in. And of course he, he oversaw this. He was, he was the man in, in charge during a period of disastrous policies and incredible damage. Yeah. And, and he even, O'Hagan even wrote about civil unrest, which is remarkable vision to look ahead. When we think about civil unrest, 
civil unrest of the 60s, you know, very tumultuous time. And we look mm-hmm. at some of the lessons from just last summer. What are some of the common themes between these these, these uprisings? And, and how do you think O'Hagan's vision would apply today? I'm really, uh, really glad you brought that up. One of the things that was really striking to me about reading O'Hagan's work on civil unrest and how to handle it was how common sense and smart and empathetic it was uh, to everyone involved. You know, he, he had that, that beautiful ability to understand when you needed to be hard and when you could be soft and when you could strategically look the other way. And I think that that is something that is really, you know, we've got all these newfangled ideas about, you know, like non-escalational policing or about how to handle different kinds of arrests, all these sorts of things. And, um, you know, John O'Hagan was talking about all these things, uh, you know, 50 plus years ago. And um, it's kind of remarkable the degree to which New York City should have burned and rioted during the 1960s in the way that so many other cities were and somehow didn't. And, and John O'Hagan and John Lindsay, the mayor, are responsible for that. Another guy who has a bad reputation, historically John Lindsay, but who did a lot of amazing things. You know, when I believe it was when Martin Luther King was shot, John Lindsay went to Harlem and walked around. Went up, he went uptown. Now, this yeah. is a, yeah, this is a six foot four, six foot five, patrician looking. What you know? He, talk about a guy who stands out. Um, there, could could you imagine a modern politician going to the the heart of where people thought you know potentially really violent, violent, you know? Unrest was going to occur, and just walking around without even really a security detail. Yeah, yeah. no one would ever do that. And John O'Hagan, who was able to deploy guys properly, um, to and with the right instructions around, you know, they they had very clear instructions, you know, coordinating with the police and making sure that if, let's say, somebody started a fire in a trash barrel, right, that there were, he had very specific ways that you needed to put that fire out that you needed to, that there were certain <laughs> fires maybe you didn't need to put out. If there was no way yeah. it was going to spread, just just leave it. If there was a chance, you go put it out, and you do everything. You have you have some guys in the hose line. Other guys are walking up and shaking hands to every bystander around saying, hey, guys, can we get through? We really want to make sure this fire goes out. You know, you get these, you know, sometimes he wrote these policies down, and sometimes they were just handed down informally to the guys who did this. But finding ways to get the job done of putting out fires and keeping people safe while not escalating a situation, because of course that's only going to result in more problems, you know, and I think yeah. being able to really work with, you know, you know, finding leaders within the, within protest groups and, and trying to work with them to prevent things from happening. And, and the city was actually, especially under John Lindsay was very good at that. And in, you know, there's these old stories about Lindsay and he had a press bus. It was like a semi fortified, you know, metal screens in the windows as well. But he put the press on this bus for this for sort of civil unrest situations, and they would go around to places with him. Uh, and it was incredible access and transparency that he gave them. And then very quietly, sometimes that bus would not show up to certain things. Oh no, we were supposed to go there, but you know, we're actually going to go over here. There's more going on over here. And what was actually going on was that the worst was going on over there, but Lindsay didn't want them to get <laughs> pictures of the wildest, you know, stuff going on because he thought it would be incendiary that it might just cause more problems. Um, you know, the fire department was key in this. He actually would use the fire department 
because they're, you know, they're a little less, uh, I, I, triggering might be the modern word for it, for community members and for, you know, media members, things like that, in, in a lot of frontline positions to deal with these things. You know, these guys are not armed. Uh, it's a little, it, uh, it keeps the, it cools things down. And yeah, it, it's, it's, it's interesting to see what's going on now. And, and we're acting like no one had ever thought to deal with a riot <laughs> by trying to calm people down. <laughs> You know, like this is some kind of revolutionary thinking. Let's not treat this, um, you know, where it's just a pure escalation conflict thing. Let's see if there's ways to work around this. Um, you know, he was John O'Hagan was way at the forefront of this 50, 60 years ago. I think a lot of a lot of things we've seen in, in the country in the last few years. If we had a lot more John O'Hagans working as as heads of uh, you know city departments around the country, I think we'd probably see a lot less of a lot of them. Um, or at least we we might see some of the some of the the rougher edges might be smoothed off, you know, with somebody with somebody like him in charge. Um, who, who I, yeah, I think really brought a lot of empathy. What he lacked sometimes in these fire cuts to these certain neighborhoods, he really seemed to have for the people when he was around them, and, and when you you were dealing directly with um, on those things. And I think you know at a certain point he didn't have as much experience. And, and he was, you know, that's the nature of being at the top of something. You're a little more removed from, from things. And, but, but whenever, you know, he had the right opportunities, he did incredible jobs on those, on those things. And I think we could learn a lot today um, from, from the things he wrote. Absolutely. A testament to his vision. Uh, remarkable. Joe, we're almost running out of time. I want to wrap up maybe with this. Uh, your book was published more than a decade ago. Have you changed your mind about any of the positions that you held when the book was published? It's a good question. I mean, in terms of, in terms of factual, you know, things, not really, uh, you know, it turns out, I mean, going back, I, I, uh, full disclosure, I screwed up some census numbers. Here I am talking all, all this criticism of, uh, of, of, you know, people messing up the numbers <laughs> from the rant side. I, I made my mistakes too. No, I, I, when I went back into it, nothing that changed the, the overall thrust of things, but I certainly screwed up, you know, this census district and this number, there was a few of those um, non-digitized archive data from 20 years ago, yeah. stuff to deal with. but, um, but, you know, I, so I've certainly made a number of mistakes on those fronts, but nothing that changed the sort of thesis or the thrust of it. You know, I, I think that um, the overall lessons uh, were, I, I think, I, I think apply as well as anything today. I mean, I, I think we've certainly seen this, right. The, Abdication of responsibility, the shortcomings that, that a, a pure data approach to situations can have. I think a lot of that stuff has held up. At times I wonder, you know, if, if, if maybe I was a little too critical of this person or that person. Uh, there were times when I aired some dirty laundry, you know, in, in interdepartmental stuff that I'm not so sure, you know, that, that is very difficult to think about because it's real people's lives. But in terms of the main thrust of it, I, I think what, what I think happened, I think the lessons that we can learn, which is the most important thing, right? Of course, we learn history for a lot of reasons, but one of the big ones is the, the hope that we can you know, be slightly better uh, in the future. Sure. I think a lot of that's true, you know, because I think it's, it's not like I came to, I, I had a lot of really hard, specific opinions on a lot of things. Uh, I think mostly it was sort of like a kind of almost truisms. Obviously, we should all work together. Um, and take and look at things from different angles and, and, and have a lot of people, a lot of seats at the table for, for, you know, people to make important decisions. That's not exactly a controversial opinion, although we don't do it that much. So maybe it is, I don't know. I, I, you know, I think that that, I think so often with these things is that we, the old truisms, you know, everything in moderation, these old, these old sort of, you know, cliches that are 
so hackneyed that we roll our eyes at them. Um, there's a reason they're old cliches, which is that we keep forgetting them and then keep coming back to them. Um, yeah. And so I think a lot of those things I, I think have, have rung true uh, on that front. Um, oh, the one thing I would actually add, though, is that I'm more sympathetic to how hard it is to do good data analysis. Um, you know, I've worked since then. I actually dove into the field a little bit and have worked often as like uh, I run a company, communications company. You know, we do a lot of we write up white papers and case studies for you know, governments and nonprofits and corporations that are you know based on really uh, a lot of statistical work. And to actually be in the room and see how these things are done. Uh, it's incredibly complicated. I think it's really easy. It was for me to sort of be like, ah, these eggheads, you know, they screw it up. They don't care. <laughs> That's not the case. You know, they, these are, these are by and large, just like anything else. It's mostly good people um, doing the best they can. But so in that sense, that maybe being, you know, personal criticism, maybe it was a little harsh, but I think that the overall, which is that like, if you know your business is really hard and really complicated and then it's tough to come to the right decisions, you better caveat that whenever you make your recommendations. You know, it, it is, it, I, I think, and that's the thing about the data field that I think, I think holds true is that they, we need to not pretend that just because one plus one always equals two, that the numbers and recommendations you derive from a million variations on that uh, are going to be just as clear and just <laughs> as guaranteed. And that can be tough for people to, to do because, you know, you got to talk your own book, you know, you got you to say, hey, listen, here's why my consulting service is so important. Like, I'm just going <laughs> to. Speak for themselves, and so I, I think that I, I, I sort of you know that that that's what I, I really do think is true. But I think it's important for us to take to the, the personal criticism thing that maybe I went too far at times, or, or or that you know I think it's important for us to, to to keep that in mind. I think we've just seen so much polarization and demonization politically. I think it's important to keep in mind that you know just blaming people is is a easy thing to do, uh, but not a particularly productive one. And and so I, I think that, that that element of maybe what I was covering at the times, I think, is, is something I think about. How do you balance that? You know, holding people accountable, but not demonizing, not trying to make it a simple sure. story where they're the bad guys, or, you know. So I, I did, that's, that's, that's something maybe I've, I've learned a little bit about, hopefully, hopefully <laughs> as a journalist. That's remarkable. And Joe, thank you so much for your time and your insights. Your book is extraordinary. Uh, one that every leader in any fire service uh, in this country should read. And on behalf of Leadership Under Fire, I'd like to thank you for your time. This was a fantastic interview. Uh, Jim, thank you so much. I, I, to both to you and to uh, Leadership Under Fire in general, and Jason, and Patty, we're all, all the great people involved. I think what you guys are doing is pretty, is pretty incredible. Uh, and I appreciate the time to come and talk about some uh, some obsessions of mine that, uh, you know, <laughs> that, that I rarely get the chance to talk shop on. So I, I really appreciate it. That's great. Thank you so much, Joe. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Before signing off today, I want to remind you of the digital journal I author, the Leadership Under Fire Senior Man's Performance Journal. The digital journal is sent every other Tuesday to share human performance content that provokes thought, generates discussion, and foster self-improvement, both professionally and personally. Leadership Under Fire has reinvigorated my commitment to lifelong learning. I'm hopeful that my performance journal is a valuable resource for leaders who are in pursuit of optimal human performance. To receive the LUF Senior Man's Performance Journal, visit leadershipunderfire.com, scroll to the bottom, and enter your email address to join the newsletter. Thank you for listening. Thank you.
The Leadership Under Fire podcast provides a platform that helps to prepare performance leaders to navigate the moral, mental, emotional, intellectual, and physical rigors in high-risk and ultra-competitive settings by developing strength of mind, body, character, and critical thought. For more on this, visit leadershipunderfire.com.